Hi, and welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I am Rebecca Lindenbach, who yeah. normally does not host this thing. That's right. Yes. And I am Connor, who also normally does not host this thing. Yes, exactly. So Sheila is typically the host and she is currently on vacation. And so I am kind of in charge for the next few weeks until they get back. But yes, this is the Bear Marriage Podcast where we like to, uh, I believe we like to strip away everything that's unnecessary from, you know, all the advice that we're typically given and get back to healthy, evidence-based, biblical advice for marriages and sex lives. And so that's what we do here. Talking about evidence-based, we are doing a research deep dive month on the blog. We're talking about a bunch of really interesting studies that have come out. We're gonna talk about how they kind of intersect with the research that we've done in our uh, results as well. But really, we're just trying to give you a good idea of what the research is currently saying in the areas of things like libido, sexual pleasure, uh, even lust, and whether or not men are visual. And so this week, we have an article out that Connor has actually gone through and read through, and he's going to kind of walk us through it, and I'll react. So let's take a look at this article here. Uh, the title of the article is Body Gaze as a Marker of Sexual Objectification, a New Skill for Pervasive Gaze and Gaze Provocation Behaviors in Heterosexual Women and Men. It's by Ross, Shane, Prudence, and Belinda. And essentially what it lays out is they did this study, they got eye tracking data from a number of men and women and showed them pictures of men and women either fully dressed or partially undressed. And they also got all of those people to fill out some self-report questionnaires indicating the kinds of behaviors that they do when it comes to looking at uh, men or women. You know, we talk a lot about this idea of men are visual, <laughs> uh, like looking at women, lusting after women is every man's battle, all men lust. And we've talked a lot kind of debunking those or breaking those down and talking about why those are unhelpful and unhealthy things to teach and ways to like things to believe and this is another example of a study that really lays out some interesting research where people have looked at it and said wow we can see some troubling things linked with this belief and these behaviors so to just break right down to sort of the central thrust of the article, what they found was men who reported that they did a lot of what was called pervasive body gazing, you know, <laughs> looking at a woman that they see on, uh, on the bus or a woman that they see walking out of the street or a woman in the office, the people who reported that they did a lot of that and you know, maybe didn't really see anything wrong with it, thought it was fine to do, just said that they did, a, did it a lot, or they liked to do it when no one was noticing them do it. The people who reported high on that pervasive body, ga body gazing, there was a very significant correlation between the self-report that they made and their behavior by watching their eye tracking so what that means is, in essence, the people who said, yeah, I like to look, actually did look longer than people who said, no, I don't tend to look. Yeah, and what's really important in what they were able to gather about this is not just how long they looked, but also how they looked. Ooh. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Like, what they noticed was men who had the high self-report of doing a lot of pervasive body gazing, uh, which is, again, looking at someone who hasn't like given you permission this isn't looking at your wife uh mm -hmm. this is you are being pervasive you are looking at someone in a situation where 
maybe you shouldn't be. What they found was those people who reported high on that would do a lot of looking at the woman's body. It was called a body gazing bias as opposed to a face gazing bias. And here's the thing, it didn't matter if the woman was dressed or partially dressed, the men who reported high in body gazing tended not to really look at the face very much. That's interesting. And they were told just to look at these pictures the way that they would normally look at a woman. Whether the woman was dressed or partially undressed, they would look at her body. They would look at her chest, they would look at her waist, they would look at her hips, they would look at all those parts, and they wouldn't look at the face nearly as much. Women, on the other hand, when it came to dressed men, tended to have, even if they reported high, they tended to look more at the face when the man was dressed. And then when the man was partially undressed, a lot of them would look more at the body. They would get a bit more of that body gazing instead of face gazing bias. Which, I mean, I think makes sense. I think so. I also think that when you just think about men versus women's fashions too, men's clothes tend not to be as like silhouette based as Mm -hmm. women's. So I do think there's a level where it might simply be that there's a bit of a clothing and fashion by like this is my my personal thought about this if you're a woman who says yeah no i like looking at hot dudes and then you're shown a bunch of pictures of guys in like you know just normal guy clothes it's going to be kind of looser button downs and slacks Mm -hmm. it's very different than then show you a bunch of pictures of a dude in like a wet t-shirt and like (laughs) tight jeans right like you might have i I do wonder how much of it versus like women's typical fashion is still meant to accentuate the natural curves of a woman's body so i do wonder if there's a little bit of um, the reason women don't look even when they report high is, I I just wonder how much of it is a fashion bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, there are a couple of things from that. First off, that might start off sounding like, well, doesn't that kind of show that the men are more visual than the women? But here's the thing. There is variation in men. Mm -hmm. Not all men do it. The men who, again, reported higher on the pervasive body gazing tended to look a lot more with that body gazing bias and they also tended to correlate with measures of objectification and they tended to correlate higher with things like pornography use, blaming the victims of sexual assault, and there's also a link when you go through the other research to the beginnings of problematic ideas and then behaviors when it comes to women. Hmm. In these men who specifically self-reported that they do a lot of pervasive body gazing, there wasn't that same correlation with the men who didn't report <laughs> pervasive body gazing and then, when tested with the eye tracking, did not do the pervasive body gazing. Yeah. And so what that means is that the people who carry this belief, the study found the people who carry this belief that men do a lot more body gazing and it's natural and it's the way men are and the people who tend to do it not in all cases but statistically they are less likely to be a safe person yeah because what that says to me the thing you were saying about how women do look when a man is in a in a a state of slight undress or partial Mm -hmm. undress or to full undress i don't know what exact parameters there were in the study but it would be uh it would typically be like a shirtless photo of a guy or like a bikini photo of a woman. All the pictures were taken from stock photos from Shuttershock. 
Oh, Shutterstock, yeah. Shutterstock. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. So what, what that actually says to me, when you're talking about how this is correlated with kind of concerning thoughts about victim blaming in terms of assault or likelihood of objectification of women, what that kind of says to me is I wonder how much of it is social as well, where men have been trained to feel like they are entitled to women's bodies. Like in places like the church, we see this all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You see grown men telling 12-year-olds to cover up because they're causing grown men to stumble and in what universe should a grown man be looking at a 12 year old right yeah. like there's 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 there seems to be a reticence to simply tell men that it's their responsibility to not objectify women which leads to higher rates of objectification and higher rates of entitlement because if you aren't ever told that you have to just not do something it's everyone else's job to make it easy for you what's the word for that that's entitlement yeah. right whereas women don't have that same ability to be entitled because because women, frankly, are at a disadvantage from having been so highly sexualized. Anyway, there's a whole, we've done so many podcasts on this. You can, um, I'll link to one of them about lust in the, the podcast notes here. What this says to me is not that women aren't visual, because what we hear from people all the time is, well, if women just understood how hard it was to look away or who, they don't understand what it's like to be visually stimulated. They don't understand what it's like to find people hot the same way that men do. But it's just women do when the man is in a state of undress or mm -hmm. there seem to be cues that like, oh, sexy time might be happening, right? But it's just that they're able to see the man as a whole person when there aren't those cues. Yeah. What does that sound like? That Again, that sounds like we just don't have the same entitlement to sex, yeah. the same entitlement to someone's body. Whereas um, we've been told that it's a biological thing. What if it's a social thing about how women are like, hey, yeah, totally attracted to dudes. If a hot dude is in front of me doing hot dude things in a way that I could assume that it's, I am allowed to look at his body, you know, like a guy's walking around shirtless. It, it's fair for a woman in her brain to be like, oh, okay, time, so time to look at a shirtless guy versus like trying to peek at a guy. Yeah. You know, I, I just think that's that's something that I find interesting. Yeah. I wonder how much of this is an entitlement difference as well, where it's not biological. It's what have you been what have you been raised to believe you can get away with? Yeah. And when I was reading through this and the results, it was immediately just the word in my head was, wow, that sounds like the issue is an entitlement thing. Mm -hmm. And so then let me lay out two other points that kind of tie into different aspects of that. Uh, the one is. Uh, looking at you know why what is the value of having a face gazing bias over a body gazing bias and where does objectifying tie into this and the thing is there is inherent social value in examining someone's face mm -hmm. because the face is capable of communicating a lot more about emotion, personality, intent, uh, intent all of those things those are Sure, the body can carry some of those, but the face is a microcosm of everything that's going on in a person's mind. When you are passing that up to look at the body, what that is doing is that is prioritizing the sexual parts of someone's body over, again, personality, emotion, all these important, crucial social aspects of what makes a person a person. And that's what that objectification is. You're passing up on that because you want to look at the bits. Yeah, and I think also just the fact that you were saying things like emotion and personality, it may have been because you read the study and I didn't, but my immediate was all intent. Because <laughs> you can't know if someone's going to be a threat to you unless you're looking at their face in the same way. Yeah. Right? So I do wonder how much of this face-gazing bias is once again because, you know, women have to be more on guard. Yeah. Now, another interesting thing to get into is you're talking about the, the socialization uh, difference between men and women. And I think there's a socialization difference between men and women. And there's also a socialization difference between how we regard men and women because 
here's something I haven't stated yet. They found that not only did the men tend to look at the women a lot and their bodies when they reported <laughs> high on that gazing, the women who reported high on that gazing looked at other women a lot more than men looked at other men. Mm. So the women, it's, it's not that, well, the men are just a lot more visual than the women. The women got a lot of attention from the men and the women, yeah. more than the men got. And I find that very interesting because that speaks to me that, yeah, you know, maybe we do have this socialization issue in our culture and society where women are generally regarded as a thing to be viewed. Yeah. With that body gazing focus, let's look at the body parts, let's look at the bits. And to clarify, when I say the women were looking a lot more at the women, I mean they were doing a lot more of that body gazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that when we were talking about this beforehand, this is one of the few points we had actually gone over beforehand. And what I was saying is to me that just sounds like the fact that women are, in essence, valued based on what we can offer sexually. That means that we become in competition with other women because of what we can offer sexually. Does that make sense? Right? Yeah. So like... I want to be, like, not myself personally, I'm putting myself, like, say I'm, say I'm someone who, you know, is in this, this mentality of the high body gazing, uh, what did you call it? What's the actual term? The body gazing bias? Yes, thank you. I have a body gazing bias as a woman. I'm not only looking at the men, I'm also looking at my competition, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're in that mindset of kind of, like, looking at people, seeing who's hot, who's not, that kind of situation, I do, I do think you see other women as competition versus someone who is just another person. What I find so interesting is we hear about this so much in church settings. Mm-hmm. So you have this situation where we are in essence training people because of certain modesty messages, because of how we're told that, you know, we, we are told at church this thing that all men are visual, men are going to look at you, men can't help it, this is a natural, normal thing that happens to men. And again, can you say what the study says happens if you believe those things? If you believe those things, you are statistically more likely to be an unsafe person, to have problematic attitudes and behaviors towards women that both mean objectifying them, belittling them, potentially being a sexual threat to them, and also when something does happen to them, putting more of the blame on them for what happened. Yeah, so just all around not the kind of person that you want your daughter to be around, Yeah. right? So this is the kind of messaging that we are pumping into these churches. We are pumping into youth groups. Every single person who went to a conservative Christian youth group in the last like 15 years, I'm sure has had a modesty talk, right? Like this is something that we all went through. And then what does that do to the women, right? We're told you'd better cover up or else you're going to make people stumble. But we're also told then that your body has power, which kind of trains us to be like, okay, but like whose body has more power, right? Because mm -hmm. like, and, and this thing we hear all the time is that women became competition, yeah. right? You get to judge people whether or not they're dressed modestly enough. But you also kind of, if, if none of the guys are you know, tempted by you, if no one's looking at you, you're kind of getting told that you're, you know, not as attractive because you're not as sin inducing. Mm -hmm. Like that's disgusting. But this is what this kind of thinking leads to. And it makes total sense how you have all these youth groups out there where you have girls being told you need to cover up because this is how men are. You get guys being told, I know this is how you are. This is just how men are. And it's a good thing. God created you this way. This is the beauty of how God designed you, but you need to rein it in. 
And then is it any wonder that we have so many stories of date rape? We have so many stories of sexual abuse from youth pastors. We have so many stories of women, you know, entering into marriages where they've never experienced sexual assault per se, but then their marriage is filled with kind of like a lot of weird dynamics about about sex. Mm -hmm. And then there's the women who get married and they do experience sexual assault within their marriages. Is there any surprise i don't really think so no i i agree i don't think there's a surprise and there's a point that i want to get out there because i know whenever we have this conversation there can always be the people who say well you can argue that this is not ideal but this is simply the way that men are and it mm -hmm. is simply the way that god created them i want to again reiterate there is variance in the male population on this study not all men reported high and did a lot of the actual looking when their eyes were tracked and the men who reported low body gazing their eye movements backed that up and so there is that variation there and to counter any argument of well you know they're not real men we're supposed to be like this i want to say if there's evidence that you can be one of these two ways do you think it's a better world to live in where all men do a lot of the body gazing, buy into those beliefs, and are unsafe and blame women for what happens to them. Or do you want to live in a world, do you think it would be better to live in a world where all men don't view and objectify women that way? <laughs> they don't blame women for things that happen to them. Uh, and they are generally safer, less assaulty people. Yeah, less <laughs> less predatory vibes just going on. Yeah, and I'm, because the research shows that not all men are this way. Yeah. Not all men are this way. Not like, all men are this way. We can't say this is how yeah. men are designed when literally not all men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think the thing that I I wish well, not even wish, I hope, because wish makes it sound like it couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Hope makes it sound like it could, right? Like, I hope what we can get from this, too, is that if you're in a church right now that is saying these kinds of messages, like, men just look at women, right? If you're reading a book and it's like, this is the, the truth of how men are, and like, you know, there are some men who don't, but really this is how God designed the male species. Like, if that's, that's the kind of message that you're getting from the resources you're listening to, the sermons you're hearing, the marriage prep that you're getting, understand that this is encouraging the kind of attitude that leads to higher rates of sexual assault, higher rates of victim blaming when a girl or a woman is assaulted, um, just it, it, it leads to all sorts of bad fruit and there is an alternative. And I hope that we can start just calling these people out, right? Because for so long, we hear about like an 11 year old girl or for so long, we've heard about like the 13-year-old, 14-year-old girls on the worship team being told that they have to wear, you know, longer skirts because the men in the front rows will be distracted and we think nothing, like we, we get a little bit frustrated in our churches, but we don't think anything of it. Now, we need to start seeing those people as problematic. Yeah. And we need to start calling out like, hey, you actually research, like this is not okay and this is not normal. It's not normal for a grown man to want to look at a 13, 14 year old girl. And I said, well, I don't want to look. Well, you're looking, yeah. okay? And it's not normal to look. Yeah. Now, there's a whole other side to this study that they did that's really interesting. Uh, because while some work has been done in the area that we've talked about before with other studies, uh, one thing that the study did that's really new that hasn't been done in a lot of others is 
they also looked at uh, how these people self-reported on what they called gays provocation behaviors. <laughs> so they looked at two sides of it. They looked at how much are you giving people unwanted looks and also how much work are you trying to put into attracting those looks to yourself? Mm-hmm, because we hear all the time, like, oh, well, she knows what she's doing. She's yeah. dressing for attention. Yeah, and they found a lot of really interesting things, a lot of really interesting correlations with both the men and the women. But first off, one thing that I just find kind of interesting and funny is we talk about all this, uh, we talk about all the women in church and out on the street and everything, like, oh, they're... They're dressing this way on purpose to try to, you know, if anything happens to them, like, they were kind of asking for it. The study showed that men actually engage in a <laughs> lot more uh, gazing provocation, be like, a lot more gazing provocation <laughs> behavior than women. And with women, here's an interesting thing that I think you'll probably have some stuff to say on. Single women tended to do more gazing provocation behavior which is you know stuff like wearing an outfit that you think looks really nice in that you think might attract other people's looks or putting on makeup that you think will make you look good to other people specifically doing things with the intention of attracting eyes to you single women tended to do more of that than women in relationships or in marriage mm -hmm. with men whether they were single or whether they were married, they did more gazing provocation than single or married women. That's hilarious. Yeah. And this doesn't mean that each individual man did more, like, gaze pro... pro, pro gaze? Gaze provocation. Gaze pro provocation. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> gaze provocation than, like, every single individual woman. We're saying, like, as a group, men were more likely to do it than single yeah. women. There's more men in marriages and relationships trying to do this than there are single women, like per capita kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. The average provocation scores for married men. Okay. Yeah. Was higher than for women. Single and women. You yeah. Still was high, yeah. Higher than for <laughs> single women or married women. And of course, now that average is taking into an account that there was a range. There were plenty of people who were low on that yeah. scale and plenty of people who were high. But the average score was higher for any man than it was for any yeah. woman. So really, it's that a lot of times these men are saying, well, that 15-year-old girl, she knows what she's doing. She wants the attention. And statistically speaking, it's likely that he's projecting his own intentions on the 15-year-old. Because the men who reported high in gazing provocation also carried more of that belief that women are responsible for what happens to them. Yeah, so exactly. So you're projecting your own yeah. kind of stuff. That's just, that's funny. And here's here's my thing. I don't actually think that it's wrong to engage in gaze provocation behavior. Like, at all. Like, we're not talking about you're putting on pasties and a thong and walking out into the street here. Like, we're talking yeah. about, like, and trust me, we lived in downtown Ottawa. We have seen people do that. Yeah. Um, but we're talking about like, just, like, doing things to make yourself look nice. Yeah. Like, like, quite frankly, I'm, like, I put on makeup. I did my hair. Like... Yeah, I put on jeans and I'm wearing a shirt that just fits a bit better around my shoulders. Than like the t-shirt that we bought eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it doesn't just include like, you know, 
actually trying to sexually arouse the people in the room with you. Yeah. It also just includes things to make yourself stand out, to make yourself, you know, be more attractive. And, I mean, I did that. Yeah. Like, when you came back and you were, like, because for people don't know, like, when, when I had a super big crush on Connor before he asked me out, obviously, and I pursued him hard, but, like, when you came back and you were single and I was like, oh, wait, you're available. Yeah. I stopped wearing leggings and sweatshirts at your house and I started wearing <laughs> cute little dresses with, you know, tights and like, yeah. you know, I, I, I started looking really good. I started suddenly doing my makeup when I was at your place instead of just showing up after class with my giant, like, with my uh, giant bags under my eyes, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> I, I started trying hard because I was like, hey, he's going to notice me and he's going to ask me out. And you know what? It worked. It turns so, out I did. Yes, it worked. But then, <laughs> frankly, as soon as we were, like, solidly in our relationship, <laughs> I just started wearing your hoodies, which was, again, territory marking. But, yes. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. But, like, that's, that is what kind of happens, right? That's, that's logical. What women tend to do, that is very logical. You want to dress, like, nicely to attract someone of, like, someone that you want to be in a relationship with. Yeah. And what that really says to me, again, is that all this stuff, this kind of, like, mindset, if women were truly simply dressing that way for attention, because they wanted attention, because they wanted to manipulate men, because they wanted to put them through a hard time, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, <laughs> Sorry, they wanted to. They wanted to give them a difficult time keeping their eyes on somewhere respectful. Then we wouldn't really see the difference before and after relationship because you still have that self-esteem need even when you're in a relationship, right? Like you would still be seeing these women having high rates of gaze provocation even after relationships and marriage. But what it is, it seems to be based on this that women tend to engage in gaze provocation behavior because they want to attract a mate, mm-hmm. right? So if you are in a like church setting and there's a 16 year old girl who's all dolled up and pretty and cute and doing her makeup and has her hair perfectly done and you are a 47 year old man looking at the 16 year old being like oh she's wearing spaghetti straps so immodest she knows what she's doing to me no she's trying to attract 16 year old tyson okay like she's trying to get a date for semi-formal okay once she gets one a lot of that gaze provocation behavior is probably going to go down. Exactly. And so this is the thing is when we don't see women's bodies as an entitlement, quite frankly, we'd be able to look at the like the 24-year-old who's, you know, out there just looking stunning and maybe wearing a bit of a showy dress that definitely shows off her assets. Like you'd look at her and not think, man, she knows what she's doing to that like, you know, 60-year-old dude in the booth over and more say, hey, okay, not for me and move on. Yeah. And I think that's really what it comes down to is understanding that men and women seem to have a fundamentally different orientation towards these kinds of behaviors and different motivations. And I really think that a lot of it comes down to, you know, women don't have sexual entitlement as a whole in the same way that men do and that's really what this study shows and again like the argument that all men and women are different is not an old one but we are not trying to say that this is how we are hardwired we are trying to say we see ranges in both genders Mm -hmm. this is more of a socialization issue that means women are expected to be objectified more than men are and so they react accordingly and we react accordingly, but some men are totally capable of just not doing body gazing Mm -hmm. behavior 
And a lot of that comes down to the beliefs that they have. Yeah, and I actually think that it's not all socialized. Like, I really think there is a genuine biological aspect to why we see so many differences in this kind of thing between men and women. And I think, frankly, a lot of it comes down to danger. Mm-hmm. You know, like, as a woman, if I were a woman engaging in hookup culture, okay, I would always have inherently more danger, like, exposed to me than a man would, right? Yeah. Even let, even just the repercussions of sex, right? Like, yeah. I have had children, okay? I have almost died in childbirth. Like, genuinely, if we had not had the medical interventions that we had, my last birth could have possibly killed me, okay? Yeah. Like, that is simply more risky than most men will ever have in sex, right? And so I think that there, and there's also issues of, you know, the average man is so much, you know, just physically stronger than the average woman, which might explain why women tend to look at the face a lot more to look for intent, because there's, frankly, there's more risk to a woman not understanding a man's intent than there is to a man not understanding a woman's intent, right? There was that, there was some tweet that was, or maybe it was a Reddit thread, I don't know, there was something on social media going wild a while ago where it said, you know, if a man and a woman are alone in an elevator the woman the man is afraid the woman will laugh at him and the woman is afraid the man will kill her yeah right like there is there is a level where there is a there is a genuine threat difference based on you know just how our bodies are but beyond that i think that what this means is i think as men the response is then to say hey you know i have the ability to walk through life with a very different experience than my female, you know, peers. And so I can then take ownership of that and I can make sure that I'm a safe person. I can assess the thoughts that I have in my brain. And I can make sure that I'm looking at a woman's behaviors through her lens and not through mine. And so this is why we need to change how we're talking about it. Because again, if you are going to a church where your pastor is Yeah, let's get into it. Let's go. Yeah, if you're going to a church where your pastor Uh, is talking or doing a sermon series or you have like a small group leader who's talking any of this kind of thing where they are talking about the every man's battle all men struggle with lust women need to cover up any of those sorts of things and that is generally accepted by the culture of your church that means the culture of your church according to the study is and a lot of the studies that support it have come before and after it there is a correlation between people who believe these things and act these ways and not seeing women as people but seeing them as just the bits yeah now i also do know that there are people who talk about the modesty message because like yeah i know i know what you're saying like i know that you're right and i know there are good men but there are also bad men out there and so we need to make sure that like you know the 14 year old isn't doing this kind of stuff yes i know that as well I also share your concern about the bad men. But remember, these men were looking at the body the same way, regardless of how much clothes were on it. Yeah. Okay? And secondly, when we are saying these modesty messages, even if it's out of a desire to make sure that these girls are not going to be looked at by these bad men, we are still creating an environment in which it is normalizing the actions of the bad men. If we're talking about it in terms of there are genuinely some creepazoids out there, I think we can have a different conversation. But often what happens in these churches is they present the modesty message so that, oh, well, there are some men who struggle with this more than others do. And so we have to make sure that the 14-year-old knows. It's like, why does she have to know? 
This is not her fault. This is not her issue. She is simply a 14-year-old who wants Chad to ask her to the sock hop or whatever. I don't know. Yep. I've been out of high school for a long time. Not that <laughs> long, I'm obviously, but you know what I mean. Like, she's trying to attract the attention of the other 14-year-olds. Yeah. We need, we need to reframe this issue because it's like we saw with whether the woman was clothed or unclothed, mm -hmm. me, uh, the men who do a lot of body gazing are looking at the same parts on her. It's not an issue of how she's dressing or what she's doing. It's an issue of where does that man look for value in a person? Yeah. And that's what they found with the face gazing bias versus the body gazing bias is your eyes are tending to go where you think you're going to be able to evaluate someone's value. Interestingly enough, well, and I mean, there were entire, I mean, talks and curriculums that we were given when, like, I, and we, I mean, young girls were given when we were growing up in junior high and high school that literally explained how some girls dress like they're trashable and some girls dress like they're valuable. Mm -hmm. Like literally training girls to engage in that whole uh, body gaze behavior. Yeah. So this is what this is why we have women also looking at other women even when they're heterosexual, right? Because yeah. they're looking to see, to judge, to see, oh, how is she dressing? And and it's we're literally grooming people to do this in the church, and it's so problematic. And I really think that we can change things because we're starting to say, you know what? I'm done with this. You know, we're starting to say this study found that there were lots of men who just were okay with looking at a woman's like face. And by the way, it didn't mean that the, the gaze never dropped below the chin mm -hmm. for those men. Like the men who didn't engage in a lot of body gazing behavior, somebody didn't notice that the woman had nice chest or a nice yeah. waist. It's, it's not it's not that our eyes kind of cut off here exactly. and we can only like, see everything. Ah, I only look <laughs> at the nose and the eyes to yeah. the eyebrow. Like that's not what's going yeah. on. And so what we're not saying is that there are men who look at boobs and then there are men who don't. What we're saying is that there are men who are creepy and objectifying and entitled about it and then there are men who just notice people yeah. and then are able to move on with their day and talk to them like real human beings and who look to their faces to see who they are, not yeah. to see what they look like. Yeah. And, and, and again, like, like you were saying, it's not about not even looking mm -hmm. at the person's body because kind of the whole thing about seeing someone as a whole person is seeing them as a whole person. Yes, exactly. Um, but another thing that I wanted to just throw out there as a little, think of this what you will. Okay. Uh, is you know how I was saying that if you're in a church where the culture is, people are talking about it like this. Uh, if, if the culture is people are talking about men's struggle and it being women's fault and all that sort of thing. According to the studies, not only is it a place where statistically the culture is less safe for women and the men are more unsafe and all that, as pious as they may be trying to sound statistically, there's more porn use in that congregation. Yeah, well, it makes total sense. Yeah. It makes total sense. So in summary, really what I hope you got from this is that if a man is saying she's she knows what she's doing to me or like ah she's dressing just for to she knows what she's doing she's dressing for attention if the, if people are talking that way they're likely projecting yeah it's the the research says that that behavior and attitude of his says a lot more about what's going on with him yeah than it does about what's going on with her exactly and additionally remember that the kinds of men who are doing a lot of this body gazing body gazing behavior they're looking at you whether you have a lot of clothes on or not like they they really are and so 
it's really unfair to be telling women and girls that it's their responsibility to cover up so that men don't look when men look yeah. whether or not you're covered up. Covering up isn't going to make the difference between whether a person sees your value in your face mm -hmm. and your personhood or if they see your value in the shape of your body. Exactly. But then additionally, there are lots of people out there who are safer, yeah. who are healthier. And similarly to how we see higher rates of body gazing leads to, you know, more sexual assault, um, more victim blaming, higher rates of porn use, higher rates of objectification, more sexual entitlement, all the bad stuff. We see more of that the more people engage in body gazing behaviors and gaze provocation behaviors. We also see that the flip side is true as well. People who don't engage in a lot of the body gazing behaviors, of which there are quite a few, yeah. like there was a good portion, right? Like they also are safer. They believe fewer rape myths. They're less likely to commit sexual assault. They're less likely to be sexually entitled or sexually objectify women because those are the same thing. Um, they are far less likely to have these negative things. And so if you're in a church that even if they're trying to do it in a beneficial or benevolent way is enabling this kind of culture, Show them the study, okay? Call them out. Let's talk about the difference between noticing and lusting and let's stop normalizing the latter, yeah. okay? Because there's no reason that the next generation of young women should be raised in a culture that tells them that it's their responsibility to control the thoughts of another human being when they're literally not even doing anything to try to provoke those thoughts in the first place. Yeah. Thank you so much, Connor, for going over the research with us. You're welcome. And now talking about all this male gaze stuff, we are going to talk about what happens when men actually do feel sexually entitled to look at women's bodies. And to talk about that, we have the wonderful Megan Chance. And I'm pretty sure I said her last name correctly. There's a lot of consonants and not a lot of vowels, and so I'm pretty sure I got that right. But Megan, we recorded this a couple months ago before her baby arrived, so congratulations, Megan. And so now let's turn to our conversation we had with Megan and Sheila's actually in on this one. So enjoy. Well, I am thrilled to have on the Bear Marriage Podcast a friend of mine, Megan Chance. Um, she is the author of Woman Rising, Finding Our the <laughs> need to listen, reclaiming our voice. You know what? I can never remember my own subtitle. <laughs> no, I can. I can guarantee she cannot remember the subtitle. Women rising, learning to listen. learning to listen and reclaiming our voice. It's actually a pretty easy one too. Like, <laughs> what is our subtitle, Rebecca? Like, great sex rescue. rescue. I have no idea either. I don't. Oh wait, know I, I have it right here. It's. Uh... <laughs> The lies you've been taught and how to recover, how to recover. what God intended. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so oh it's not my, my, my lack of, of knowledge of your subtitle is not a reflection of how I feel about your book because I loved Woman Rising. I had you on the podcast when it first yes. came out, actually, a little over a year ago, mm -hmm. um, you talking about it. And that was a really popular podcast. I'll put a link mm -hmm. to that. But Megan, thank you for joining us again. I am so excited to be back here. I'm so grateful for all of the work y'all have been doing. We are taking on this harmful Christian patriarchy together. And so <laughs> I'm glad to have y'all on my team. Yes. Now I, I sent Megan off an email earlier this week because I had listened to a four-part uh, podcast series that you did on your podcast, Faith and Feminism, where you were talking about um, Stacey and John Eldridge's book, Captivating. 
Yes. <laughs> which they wrote um, after John Eldridge's wildly successful Wild at Heart. Mm -hmm. And you were looking at some of the problematic things in that. And I will put a link to that series where people can listen because it really was, it was quite well done, a big deep dive into Captivating, which I haven't read in ages. And so I haven't talked about that oh. book. And yes, if you're wondering. It's bad. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but one of the things you said, I was like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness. Megan and Rebecca and I need to talk about that. So he, let me sum it up and then I'll let mm -hmm. you comment. Okay. You were talking about how, when evangelicalism tells men that they are visual and that lust is every man's battle, it can give men an excuse to objectify women because they think they're just living out their nature. And mm -hmm. so it results in women being bombarded by sexual objectification messages when they didn't ask for it. And you were telling how you were just working at a voting booth and guys mm -hmm. were commenting on your body. Yeah. So, I mean, I think every woman knows what it's like to have the unsolicited comments of what men think of their body. I'm sure I'm not unique. I'm actually eight months pregnant right now. And I went to New York recently and I thought, you know, maybe <laughs> when I'm walking with my husband, eight months pregnant, people are not going to make a comment. And I was unfortunately wrong. I had men tell me their pregnancy fetishes with my husband standing right there. Um, when I was walking down the street and just different random men commenting on how far along I am and, and just really uncomfortable comments. And I think this is really sad because I don't want to live in a world where I can't exist without some man telling me what he thinks of my body. Women can't do their jobs. They can't exist walking down the street. They can't go to a coffee shop without these messages that are constantly objectifying to us being thrown in our face. And so I think um, patriarchy is a problem, but I also think the church is feeding this by teaching men that they're visual um, that they're kind of entitled to let women know how they feel, that they're entitled to a woman's space. Um, I would never dream of approaching a man and telling him what I thought about his body. That's nothing that I have ever even considered doing, especially if it's a stranger. And so mm -hmm. I don't, I think there's a real pattern of gendered socialization that tells men it's okay, that tells boys it's okay, uh, because they're visual creatures and can't help themselves. Okay. Now, uh, when we first, Rebecca, you'll remember this in 2017, in June, when I did that very first series on every man's battle on the blog, and we had that one commenter who wouldn't shut up, who said, I just wish that women would objectify me sometimes. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was like, you sure it can be painful to be the subject of sexual objectification, but you know, it's more painful to never have women find you sexually attractive. And we said, go away. No, stop. Um, because you can't wow. say, okay, sure. There's a risk of being sexually assaulted and murdered and part of a true crime podcast, <laughs> but at least people think you're hot. Like, no, that's not okay. We don't, we don't talk like that around here. And so he got really, really, really angry because we were calling him out for, you know, being a misogynist rape apologist. Um, cause that's what he was yeah. doing. He even told people who had been sexually assaulted. He's like, yeah, but like, you know, it's also, it's, it's even harder to think that you're never attractive to the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, it's not. 
Yeah. Well, and, that and doesn't I, indicate attraction. That and that's, what, that's exactly control. what we said too. That's, that's what we said problem. too. It's about power. Okay. It's not about, especially since um, we have this, this, and, and that's often how women often use this kind of men are mm-hmm. visual getting, uh, getting uh, compliments and comments against other women. It was like, oh, well, just at least people find you pretty. It's like, no, it's not about pretty. It's not about mm-hmm. attractiveness. It's about wanting that power over someone else mm-hmm. it's it's an entitlement move and it's about ownership it's not about anything relational at all right, right. I know your your um the the your guest on your podcast she uh, did some in-home healthcare work and she mm-hmm. was talking about how she would be seeing a patient and treating a patient and he would make comments on how beautiful she was or how you know, after this, we should go out on a date or something. Mm -hmm. And it was just very inappropriate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we're always trying to diffuse bombs, right? Like we're always trying to figure out how serious is this? Can I just laugh it off? Do I need to confront him hard? Do I, you know, do I need to say a firm? No, do I need to ignore it? Mm -hmm. And it's a very uncomfortable position for a woman to be in. Mm-hmm. And it's a dangerous position um, because I think we've all been in situations like I have run the gamut of all of the responses. I've ignored the comment. I have confronted the comment. And every, I will say every time I've confronted the comment, it's gotten more dangerous for me. Like I've felt more at risk um, because of it. I had one time a guy just like mock me to my face and get closer. We're, we're constantly trying to dismantle the level of threats. How do we stand up for ourselves? Is this going to make me more unsafe? And it's just a huge mental and emotional burden that women shouldn't have to go through because the truth is we're not safe. We hear the stories all the time. If we, you know, look at the statistics um, in the United States, one in three women um, is a survivor of sexual assault and between one and five and between one and six is the survivor of rape or attempted rape. And those numbers are actually probably higher, but this is like due to self-reporting and a lot of women Hmm. feel shame. And so they don't come forward. And so when people make men, men make those comments, it's not crazy for us or irrational for us to think, am I in danger right now? Um, Is this something that can escalate? Because it does escalate often. And it's not fair for us to have to exist in this world of, like you said, diffusing bombs and trying to figure out what they mean. Is this a serious threat? Am I safe here? What can I do to make sure that I'm seen as a human being without putting myself in danger. That really does explain the difference. And so then when we're in this, this church culture where we're in a society where women are the victims of men more often than the mm-hmm. other way around. It's actually of, 99% yeah. of perpetrators are men, 99%. Yeah. So. yeah. And so then we're in a church culture that teaches men part of your manliness, your God-given maleness is to be sexually bent, to be sexually deviant in this mm-hmm. way where, and, and I'm and, not saying, and I will, and that's actually a quote from Al Mohler and Gary Thomas. That's what uh, I was going to say. That actually is a quote from Al Mohler and Gary Thomas is that men are sexually broken. Men mm-hmm. are not able to be sexually healthy. Um, that's what they, they say because men are so visual. They're so sexually focused. Uh, they, they just are naturally going to objectify women. And so then what happens if you're a woman who's in that church and that's what you're hearing. And so then all the Christian quote unquote men around you feel totally justified spiritually to mm-hmm. tell you what they think about your body. Or the thing is that in church, it's not, Ooh, nice rack. That's not what they say. What they say is just so you know, that blouse, um, might make 
the men stumble. Mm-hmm. What they mean is, ooh, titties. Like, that's what mm-hmm. they mean. And that's what we hear, right? Like, oh, that skirt's a little short. It's like, oh, you're trying to look up my skirt. Okay. And it's okay, also you're looking at my likes. Happening at like age 12. They're yep. doing this to children. Yes. Children. That's the first time I was reprimanded for something I was wearing. I was 13. Yeah. And it was like not even crossing my mind that I could in any way be sexual. Like it was just so because you weren't me. Right. I was yes. existing in a body. I just, it's so predatory. Yep. And I, and I don't think men understand that. Like it, the, you, you think about the, the stereotypical, you know, young woman walking by the construction thing and all the guys are whistling at her and the guys think they're giving a compliment. And what the girl is thinking is, can I run fast enough? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The girl's thinking there's now five men who are looking at me sexually. And what happens if they all decide to come at me at once? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not a safe thing. So that's, that's point one. I want to move on to point two, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but when we define male sexuality as objectifying women, Mm -hmm. and when we define this as being God-given, like Steve Arterburn says in every man's battle, um, the reason for sexual sin, we got there naturally simply by being male. Um, Men just don't have that Mm -hmm. Christian view of sex. So, you know, those are actual quotes. So when we define male sexuality as this objectification, then what we can get is a lot of male authors telling us far too much that we never wanted to know (laughs) about themselves. Yeah, because sexuality becomes something that you put on someone else, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is something that I will enact on you because I'm a man, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's how we talk about sexuality. So we get quotes such as, well, here, let me just read you this yeah. from, from <laughs> sheet music. Them. This is, this is Kevin Lehman in sheet music for those women who want to serve up a special treat for their husbands. Let's talk about making Mr. Happy smile. Mr. Happy likes to be kissed. Nothing puts a smile on his face, like a loving wife's oral caress. And I just want to say that I did not consent to know what Kevin Lehman calls his penis. No, but we all know. We all know about Mr. Happy. It's yeah. just so, also, can I just say that that is the cringiest thing? Just not even on a like morally, let's talk about the societal implications, but just that whole passage is the creepiest, cringiest thing that I think I've ever read. Yeah, it's so it's. I really don't need to know what you call your penis. I don't no. need to know your sexual preferences. And it also just drives me crazy because I don't think he, I mean, I haven't read sheet music, but does he ever say how to please his wife? Like Mrs. I don't oh, know. He actually he does. does. He, he does. does okay. Although it's creepy okay. as well. It's also creepy. It's no, it's no okay. less creepy. It's all like touch the tender little friend, do a little dance on her tender little friend okay. with your fingers. And I'm just like, just call it a clip. It's fine. Let's oh. not. What does he call infantilize. it? He calls it tender, tender little friend. friend. We're okay. not. So we're going to infantilize women. And it's just, yeah, it's a whole okay. thing. Yes. Cause there's also that element of it too, right? This infantilization of women, which is, we, we did a focus group when we were writing great sex rescue about that Mr. Happy passage. And a lot of women said like, it sounded like a pedophilic Mr. Rogers. Right. Like it was just really disgusting. Like that was just the total yeah, like wrong a, vibe. Like a, a puppet show. It's like, yeah. and here's Mr. Happy. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then there's, then there's, let me read you this. This is the opening to every man's battle. So this is the story that opens the book. And I have read this before. And it's so offensive. Just, so just letting people know it's offensive. 
Yeah. And I'll okay. probably like skip part of it just because I don't want to like read erotic material. Okay. So again, this is, this is a book about how to stop lusting supposedly. Okay. My eyes locked onto this goddess-like blonde rivulets of sweat cascading down her tanned body as she ran at a purposeful pace. Her jogging outfit, if it could be called that in those days before sports bras and spandex was actually a skimpy bikini. As she approached on my left, two tiny triangles of tie-dyed fabric struggled to contain her ample bosom. Okay. And then it goes on. I can't tell you what her face looked like. Nothing above the neckline registered with me that morning. My eyes feasted on this banquet of glistening flesh. Yep. Oh my gosh. That's like literally just treating her as an object. She's not even a human being. She's a piece She literally of flesh doesn't even have a face to him. And then in every young man's battle, so their companion book for teen boys, they talk about the pair of bouncing breasts that mosey by. That's how they, that's how they describe a woman, a person. So I think it's not only telling boys or men that it's okay to see women as objects. It's also saying, if you don't see women this way, then there's something wrong with you. You're not mm-hmm. a man. You're not yeah. a man. You're less sexually voracious. You're not as masculine. If you're mm-hmm. not seeing women as objects to consume and not even seeing their face, then there's probably something wrong with your masculinity. When I read this kind of thing from every man's battle, and I think about this evangelical culture that you were talking about, um, how it, it encourages the same kinds of things you've experienced where men just come up and just comment on your body, like mm-hmm. totally entitled it just feels like um an a form of sexual exhibitionism like it's almost like this fetishize this kink of like getting off on other people seeing your kink <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like what you're into and it is a thing that a lot of men are really into and that's why flashing happens and i do wonder mm-hmm. if like why if a lot of this writing is kind of the equivalent of evangelical flashers where it's like the ideas of like getting to shock other people sexually makes you feel powerful. Yeah, I you think know? there's a there's another thing that could be at play. See what you both think of this, which is in the secular world, the way that you prove your manhood is by conquests, right? Mm-hmm. So you have multiple sexual partners, you have the notches on the bed frame, whatever, whatever, mm-hmm. however you want to say it, right? In the Christian world, we're not allowed to have conquests because you're only supposed to ever sleep with your wife. And so the the only way that we could do this is by showing that even though I'm not sleeping with all these women, I have a really strong libido and attention for all these women. So like lust becomes your way of showing that you're a man because you can't sleep with all these women, but I can lust after all these women. Right. I would think that's definitely true. I think it is a way of showing (laughs) libido (laughs) and like sexual prowess. Yeah. I think so. And then like in all of the evangelical books, like we just read Captivating, um, which you already heard about, but one of the things that he literally says is that women were put on earth to arouse Adam. Like that was their words is arousing Mm -hmm. Adam. And he like paints these pictures of how, like, for example, there was a guy in World War II that came home from war and he had a nurse and she had met all of his like nursing needs, like wrapping his wounds or whatever. And and she's like, is there anything else I can do for you? And he's like, yeah, can you just put on, can I just watch you put on lipstick? 
And I rem- remember reading that because the way they talk about it in the book is like, oh, this is just how men are. They like he just needed to watch her put on lipstick. Like that's so that's so it's creepy. disgusting. It's so creepy. It's objectifying. She's not there to like get you off. She's there to like take care of your wounds or whatever. She's a nurse. And this is, I think this is why women can't go anywhere. They can't like the home healthcare nurse or when I was working in the voting pools or when I was a teller or like any time, like we can't exist. We're always being sexualized. And it's like, men are trying to prove some kind of power or how, how masculine they are by showing us that they have a libido. And I think a lot of that libido has even been trained into them telling them you have to feel this way as a man. And if you don't, you're less masculine. I think for sure. And what I wish is that men who did this and authors who wrote like this understood the effect that it has on the women who read it. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we've, we've talked about, you know, how to write sex scenes with like how to write about sex without being creepy before on podcasts. And, and, um, we've talked about how some authors have mentioned how much they like breasts, for instance. Right. There's, but like, it's just if, a problem that we can tell whether or not an author is a boob or a butt guy. Like we can tell you for each of them because yeah. they all let you know. And it's like, I don't need to know. But like, if I know that you like breasts, then do I want to be in the same room with you? Because I'm going to feel like if your eyes go anywhere near me, then you're thinking about my breath. Like I should not know about these people's sexual preferences. Like I've been working on this blog for, I don't know, 15 years. You know, the great sex rescue has been Mm -hmm. like, this whole project has been like three years in the making. And I am pretty sure that, that no one on my team knows anything about my sexual preferences or my husband's, you know, (laughs) we have a lot of very strict boundaries that are not difficult to not cross guys. Yeah. But it's, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And I don't know how to get men to understand this. Like, like Megan, what would you say to the guy who is thinking, well, I am just giving a compliment It's not a compliment, especially when you think of the way that if we're talking about evangelical culture, we have been taught that men are visual creatures, that they're sexually fantasizing about you, which is obviously wildly uncomfortable. We've also been told it's really, really hard for men to control themselves. And we've also been told it's our responsibility to control men's lusts by the way we dress. But the thing is we can't control that. It doesn't matter how we dress, we're gonna be objectified. And so what I want men to know is what they might think is an innocent comment it's, it's carrying a lot of baggage about, am I safe with you? Are you going to harm me? How do I know this is not a, like a threat or something I want to do to you in the future? How do I know if you're a safe person? And we're having to navigate, like, what do we report and what, what do we not report? What do we fight back about? What do we not fight back against? I remember when I was a teller at a bank, I had this customer who was married. He was way older than me. I was like 20 two at the time. And he was very well into his sixties. And he would tell me that I was the sexiest teller there. And, uh, he was clearly married and I would like try and ignore his comments and he wouldn't let me do anything until I would thank him for objectifying me. And that man, I didn't 
Like I didn't know because I knew that sexual harassment was against our bank's policy. I knew I could report it, but you're constantly, is that a harmless comment or is this sexual harassment? Am I actually safe? Is he going to follow me? Is he going to follow me after work? Is this an indication that he's, um, you know, a predator or is this just something he says, but the way he made me say, thank you, makes me feel like this is some kind of power trip to him. And so we're constantly battling this. Is this sexual harassment? Is this something I need to report? Is this something I need to fight back against? And then if we do report it, then we're being told that we're, he didn't mean anything by it. For example, I had a chiropractor who was making, I didn't think the comments were inappropriate at first until I repeated them back to him and he told me to whisper. And that's when I knew that he clearly thought that why he was saying something about like my muscles and how he can, it it was like, it could have been normal, but it wasn't until I like repeated it back to him that he asked me to whisper that I knew something was wrong. And so I went to a different chiropractor because that was really creepy. And he also asked, he was like, I would like to take you to the gym and show you these moves and whatever. So I stopped seeing him and I went to a different chiropractor and they're like, oh, why did you leave that one chiropractor? I'm like, well, I think he said some inappropriate things to me. And they said, oh, that's probably in your head. And so women are constantly met with like, how do I protect myself? Because we do know with doctors, Dr. Larry Nassar, women getting abused, ch- children, girls getting abused from their doctors because they think we trust these mm-hmm. men and what they're doing. And they're like, well, why didn't you do anything? Well, because when we do do something, we're told that it was in our head and that we were making it up. Um, And so we're constantly in the situation of like, I think I'm actually in danger. My gut's telling me I'm in danger. But if I do something about this, then I'm making a big deal out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really just this double bind. And so you might think you're making an innocent comment, but you're telling us that you it's, it's a power play. It's saying I'm entitled to your space. You're entitled to know my thoughts. You're entitled to know my sexual preferences about your body. And there's nothing you can do about it because what are you going to do? And it's putting this obligation on women to try and discern. And it's just like so much, it's a, it's, it's diffusing a bomb and it's really not fair and it's really not okay. And I've had it from the gamut of doctors to pastors, to people that, you know, I'm serving at my work. And so it's just, mm-hmm. it's unsafe. And, and, and a lot of us have been sexually assaulted. And so we don't know, how do we know yeah. you're not going to do that to us? And I want to say it goes, it goes beyond assault too. Cause what you're saying is really important. Like, mm-hmm. like women need to feel safe and often we don't feel safe, but mm-hmm. there's also another element to it, which, which gets into a bit of the power thing, which is how to put women in their place. Mm-hmm. And really, yes. when you make a sexual comment, what you're doing is you're putting women in their place. Mm-hmm. You're saying you will always be below me, right? You will always be less than me. I remember reading a story. I think it was about Harvey Weinstein, but it, it was, it was in the Hollywood context anyway, of a woman who had written this amazing screenplay. And she actually got an interview with, I think it was Harvey Weinstein. And this was like her life's work. She was a young woman in her twenties. This was her life's work. She was so proud of it. And she went in thinking that she was going to get to present this. And instead, you know, he made these sexual comments. She got away. She wasn't Mm -hmm. assaulted, but that story in particular made me cry because I'm just thinking she did all of this work. And then he just reduced her to sex. He was saying all of your work, your mind doesn't matter. Your intelligence doesn't matter. What you have to offer the world doesn't matter. I will always only see you as a sex object. And Mm -hmm. that is the message that I am getting from these male authors and from so many people in church is 
I will always only see you as a sex object. It's a way to put women in their place. Absolutely. The hard thing is when you have this message from evangelical leaders in a culture that already does it, it's like the church had a choice, right? We could call men to actually be like Christ and not objectify. I'm sorry, Christ would not (laughs) have objectified a woman. Mm-hmm. He didn't. Um, we could actually call men to be like Christ, or we could simply say, well, being like Christ is really hard for men. And so why don't we just keep men in power and make sure that the women get in line so that the men don't ever actually have to grow up and never mm-hmm. actually have to develop. And we're going to call it good. We're going to say, this is God designed masculinity. This is God designed libido. This is like a woman's design was to arouse her Adam. Mm -hmm. That is disgusting. And the only thing that I can think of is that verse, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Mm -hmm. And we also know that Jesus actually told men who struggle with lust to pluck out their own eyes. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not like... Jesus was like, no, this is not her fault. This is on you. And we also see this, like Jesus putting his body on the line to defend women um, who like, for example, with adulterous women to protect them. And it's interesting because I just um, had my friend Ben Ben Kramer, which I'm sure you know who he is. He's a great tweeter. Um, He's a reverend on on the podcast to talk about this, but all of the, 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 biblical examples of masculinity he was given was like David, who is a rapist. I mean, I think we all know that, that he used his power uh, to rape Bathsheba and then killed her husband. Um, Mm -hmm. Those were his examples of masculinity, but he was never taught that Jesus is an example of masculinity that he should follow, which I think, again, Mm -hmm. illustrates like you're, you're still trying to put this harmful patriarchal narrative on Mm -hmm. biblical masculinity when Jesus was a man and we see him telling men to pluck out their own eyes if they're struggling with lust. He's Mm -hmm. clearly putting the responsibility on men and not on women to control uh, those thoughts and actions. Yeah, so good. So Megan, um, tell us, give us like a little bit of a lowdown on your book. I know we've had you on before, but just just give us a synopsis and where people can find you. Yeah, so I was raised in um, evangelical culture, (laughs) which... Um, I'm sure many people are familiar with, and I was actually a missionary that worked with sexually exploited women, and I was completely bought into evangelical culture, even though it felt wrong to me, I was willing to put aside my convictions of like, this doesn't feel like, for example, biblical manhood and womanhood, I was willing to put that aside because I love Jesus so much. And it wasn't until I started working with women around the globe who had been sexually exploited or who had been survivors of female genital mutilation that I started to notice a tie between patriarchal culture, this idea that men should be in charge and powerful all the time and women's abuse. And so I started asking more questions. I started doing more research and I feel like it all came to a head one day when I was talking to a John, a man who was buying, um, a a woman he had uh, sexually exploited. And I was asking him why he was there. And he said that he came uh, to get the respect that he deserved, that as a man, he was entitled to respect. And women in the United States, we were in the Philippines, women, these women who are being exploited, and I could tell you the most horrific stories, 
he said, were raised right and knew how to give men the respect that they deserved. And I was, he went on this really long tirade about it. I think we've all heard a similar speech. And I'm like, where have I heard this before? Like, this is so familiar, but this is such a different context. I had trouble placing it. And then it hit me that he sounded just like all of these evangelical pastors, all of these evangelical books I had growing up. And it hit me that the same motivation that this man has to sexually exploit this woman is the same motivation that men who are preaching apparently God's word had. And that's when I really realized that I can't be complicit in the system anymore. I can't say that men um, being in power over women is an okay or good or godly thing. And I started doing research, realized that sexual abuse and um, sexual assault is actually, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, is about power and control. And that a church that is teaching men to desire power and control is actually very much contributing to the problem that we have of women abuse. So it's a memoir. That's the book. I go into a lot more research there, but it was obviously this life-changing moment. Ever since then, I've been dead set on dismantling uh, Christian patriarchy because I do not think it's of God. And I think it's really harmful and really damaging. And it says in the Bible that we can judge a tree by its fruit and the fruit of patriarchy is abuse and oppression and harm. And so we got to cut this tree down because it's, it's bad. So, Amen. Yeah. Amen. So I will put a link to woman rising, learning to listen, finding, yeah. <laughs> reclaiming, our reclaiming. reclaiming our voice. You almost got it. <laughs> <laughs> and I will put a link into the four part podcast series you did on captivating. So people can listen into that too. So thanks so much for joining us, Megan. And I'll put a link into your Instagram as well. I love your Instagram. I'm always on there. So, okay. okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you. All right. Well, that is all that we have for you for this week. Thank you so much for tuning into the Bear Marriage Podcast. We will have all the links to the things that we mentioned in this podcast available in the post that goes along with this episode. You will be able to find a link to that in the podcast description notes as well. Make sure that if you like this, you rate it five stars wherever you listen to podcast episodes. And if you want to let us know personally um, your thoughts on anything we discussed, just head on over to that post um, that you'll find linked and you can leave us a comment and we will interact with you there. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and until next time we'll see you later